Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Murder in Modesto, The State versus Scott Peterson, Episode 3. In this third episode of Part 5 of the six-part series, we will deep dive the defense's case, or lack thereof, and the sentencing of Scott Peterson, culminating this lengthy legal case that will find Scott Peterson guilty and sentenced to death by lethal injection. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. The defense of Scott Peterson ran a very sad six days in total. His team's cross-examination was never able to do what he had claimed, to prove Scott was stone-cold innocent. He made every attempt to eliminate evidence, block testimony. He called for mistrials and objected as often as he could. But in the end, the fancy-smancy attorney from Hollywood came up short. He would call up a sad 13 witnesses to Scott's defense. Of those 13... The five he had promised that would exonerate Scott with sightings of Lacey after Scott had left to the marina never materialized. The one strong witness that he had was Dr. Charles Marsh, who attempted to testify that baby Connor was born and survived until December 29th. But his testimony crumbled under cross-examination and the entire courtroom laughed as he begged the cross-examiner to give him a break. Lee and Jackie, Scott's parents, took the stand. Jackie attempted to explain why she had given her son $15,000 in cash he was carrying when he had been arrested, but overall, the witness statements were not compelling and added no real support in Scott's defense. On November 1st, Sharon's birthday, closing arguments were presented. The prosecution painted a picture of what they believed to be what happened to Lacey. Scott Peterson, the Peterson's youngest son, Their golden boy, as Jackie referred to him, was bogged down by a failing job and the responsibility of a family with a new baby on the way and a wife who wanted a new car and a bigger house and he was feeling trapped. The walls were closing in and he couldn't breathe. Well, he could breathe, but the grass was greener on the other side and the air was fresher too. This wasn't the life he was supposed to be living. He should have been a golf pro. Instead, he was stuck in a small town Modesto selling shit for a living, literally, fertilizer. He wanted to live the life he fantasized about, a life where he could jet set and travel. It was the life that he had lied to Amber about with duck hunting trips, evening runs in Brussels, and New Year's Eve in Paris. This was the life that Scott wanted, and he wanted it with someone like Amber, not someone like Lacey. But instead of filing for divorce and admitting that he had failed marriage, Scott could keep the golden boy designation his mother had given him if Lacey just disappeared. After all, people disappeared all the time. He had already presented the perfect facade of a loving and healthy relationship. He had been living a dual life. In the life he shared with Lacey, he was the perfect husband and partner. In his other life, he was a womanizing adulterer with a string of lies that had taken the detectives more than four months to unravel. So on December 6th, When Sean confronted Scott about being married and he concocted his explanation that his wife was lost, Scott put his plan into motion. He researched different bodies of water where a human body could be disposed of and found that the San Francisco Bay had the best possibilities of launching a body into the Atlantic Ocean if it were to settle in a deep current. He researched the currents of the bay and different launching sites and zeroed in on the Berkeley Marina. 
he'd need a boat, one big enough to hide a body, and he found one, and then paid cash for it on December 8th. On December 9th, after being cornered by Sean with threats that if he did not come forward to Amber and tell her he was married, that she would tell her friend the truth, so he did what he always did. He inserted just a little bit of truth into his lie. He told Amber that his wife was lost and that this would be the first holiday alone. He broke down with tears and heaving sobs, which made her not question him further as she moved to comfort him. He wouldn't be able to find these same feelings or emotions for Lacey or Connor. And pundits would call this normal behavior for Scott. On December 14th, Scott would go to Fresno. He would rent a tux and go to a lavish Christmas party with Amber while Lacey drove herself in a storm to their friend's home for their annual Christmas party. She would spend it alone. The following week, Scott and Lacey would go to Carmel on their annual trip with Lee and Jackie, and Scott will spend every day calling Amber. He would refuse to send Mackenzie to Sharon's house as was customary, and instead told Lacey to leave Mackenzie, who up to that point had been an inside dog, outside in the elements with only a dog bed for comfort. He had already begun to mentally turn off his feelings and emotions for Lacey, Connor, Mackenzie, and the Rochas. On December 20th, the next step of his plan was to purchase a fishing license, which he got, dating it for the days he planned to go fishing, valid for December 23rd and December 24th. He didn't invite his brother-in-law or any of his close friends. He didn't invite Ron, who loved and lived to go fishing. He didn't even announce it to Lacey's parents, his friends, or his family that he had purchased a boat. And although he had a boat cover, he kept the boat at the warehouse, away from prying eyes. Everything was coming together as planned. On December 23rd, Scott went to Lacey's appointment, but didn't take her to register for the birthing unit that was scheduled for that day. Instead, he got a haircut, and Scott volunteered to pick up a fruit basket for Papa after going golfing. He had already scheduled tea time for the 24th. He invited Amy Rocha over to the house for pizza. What better way to normalize the day's events and paint the picture-perfect story? No one knows what exactly happened after 8.30 p.m. after Lacey spoke with her mom and confirmed that they would be attending the Christmas Eve dinner at Sharon's. But we can assume that Scott waited for Lacey to be at her most vulnerable, most likely in bed or falling asleep, when he either strangled or suffocated her. A soft kill. Scott was six feet tall and outweighed Lacey by almost 100 pounds. Lacey was 5'1 and barely weighed 150 pounds, and she was eight months pregnant. It would have been quiet, it would have been fast. Lacey, the fighter that she was with natural motherly instincts, would have fought to survive and save baby Connor, scratching at Scott's hands to breathe until she could no longer fight. Scott would have then begun moving Lacey's body in the cover of darkness before sunrise, which was at 7.18 a.m. that morning of December 24th in 2002. He would wrap Lacey in the boat cover and lay her in the bed of the truck covered by pool umbrellas. He would use a blue tarp to cover the umbrellas for added protection. He had to time his departure just right so that it would be believable that Lacey took herself for a walk so attention could be diverted away from the crime scene. Everyone would be looking at the park, not at his home. As a result, he couldn't leave too early. That wouldn't work. The Martha Stewart show played in the background as he cleaned and vacuumed and thought through his plan. He heard the show reference meringue cookies at 948. He would forget to fix the rug by the back door, and he would not replace the pallet that had sat against the back door during his trip to Carmel, leaving it propped against the fence. He would sloppily make the bed. He would mop the floor, move the bucket of water, leave the shades drawn. He would pull Lacey's hair curler and leave it in the sink. Lacey would have done her hair to go shopping. His story would be that Lacey woke up, ate cereal at 7 a.m., he would join her at 8 a.m., and she would eat again, piece of toast. He would leave the house at 9.30 a.m. with Lacey mopping the floor. If asked, her plan would have been to prepare for the Christmas brunch, go shopping after walking Mackenzie. As Scott left, he made a phone call to check his messages on his cell phone. The cell phone would ping at 10.08 a.m. in the neighborhood. At 10.18 a.m., Karen's service would see Mackenzie in the street as she prepared to go do some Christmas shopping of her own. She would place a dog in the backyard and leave his leash on. Nothing looked out of place. Scott would get to the warehouse at 10.30 a.m. This would give him time to prep Lacey's body for disposal. Because of the holiday, no one would be there. He would send his boss an email and download instructions to a tool that he had already put together. Having backed up to the warehouse, he would move Lacey from the bed of the truck to the bottom of the boat. 
he would use wire cutters to affix homemade eight-pound anchors to her throat, both hands, and both feet using chicken wire that he had in the back of his truck. He would duct tape any rope or wire and anchors to her body to better control her center of gravity and wrap her in plastic and then wrap her in the tarp. He would then place the boat cover on the boat to conceal his cargo and he would then depart to the Berkeley Marina. He would not use his cell phone so that his location could not be pinged on cell towers. When he got to the marina, he paid for parking and left the ticket in his truck. He drove to the boat launch, he got the boat in the water, but in his haste, he forgot the lures in the front seat of the truck. He took the boat out near the fifth buoy near the Albany Bulb, a point north of the Berkeley Marina, and worked carefully to dump the body into the bay without anyone being the wiser. He then returned to the Berkeley Marina and took the boat out of the water. A group of men who happened to be there on Christmas Eve saw him. It created a weakness in his alibi. The entire transaction would have lasted close to an hour. The witnesses were troubling. His alibi that he was at the country club golfing would not hold up if anyone came forward later and said they had seen him at the marina. His story would fall apart. His new alibi was that he had gone fishing. He called the house phone and left a recording and called Lacey's cell phone as well as he left the marina, which he knew had a dead battery. He checked messages and returned calls. He stopped in Livermore for $12 of gas. Now he had two transactions that would put him out of town. When he got to the warehouse, he put the boat away and threw the tarp and boat cover in the back of the truck, covering the pool umbrellas and drove home. When he got home, he backed in to be able to unload the pool umbrellas later as he was rushing. In the backyard, he found Mackenzie, which probably startled him. How had Mackenzie gotten in the backyard? He went in the house and removed all of his clothing. His anxiety had kept him from feeling hungry since breakfast, and he had not eaten, so he grabbed some leftover pizza and jumped in the shower to wash any evidence off of his body before alerting anyone that Lacey was missing. He threw his clothes in the washer. After showering, he checked the messages and was surprised to hear Ron had called, asking for them to pick up whipped cream prior to coming over. Scott picked up the phone and he called Sharon. Is Lacey there? I just got home and she's not here. Mackenzie was in the backyard with his leash still on and Lacey's missing. Disastos would tell the jury that Lacey had been dead to Scott way before he killed her. He called it a simple case of man murdering his wife. He said the bodies washed ashore exactly where he said he had been and because of that he was guilty beyond reasonable doubt. Gregos had Scott turn to the jury. He asked, do you guys hate him? Referring to Scott. He called Scott the biggest jerk that ever walked the face of the earth. But that didn't make him a murderer. He said that the fact that Scott had invited Amy over for pizza indicated that there was no nefarious plans in the works and that although Scott had cheated, he had otherwise treated Lacey respectfully. Jury deliberations began on November 3rd. On November 9th, Juror Fran Gorman was dismissed when it was discovered that she had done some outside research, which was against the rules. What she had done was she had went and searched the phishing information on her computer at home. When she shared that with the jurors, they had to report it to the judge as it was a violation of the rules. She was replaced by Rachel Nice. On November 10th, Juror Foreman steps down as the foreman. He's an attorney doctor. What's not known is that he tried to cause a mistrial of the case by sharing information that he wasn't allowed to share and talking to one of the other jurors when he wasn't supposed to be talking about the case. And he did this because they tried to vote him out of position because he wasn't doing a good job of leading the team as a foreman. As an attorney, he was stuck in analysis paralysis and the jurors were becoming frustrated with his leadership. He was replaced and another foreman was designated. On November 10th, Garegos did a vile and despicable thing when he purchased a building in town for $1 million and placed a replica of Scott's boat in front of the building and placed a body similar in size and build to Lacey in front of the building and asked people to demonstrate how someone could throw a body out of a boat without tipping it over. The community responded to this disgusting act by flooding local flower shops with orders of flowers and the community covered the boat with so many flowers and candles and wreaths for Lacey and Connor that you couldn't even see the boat anymore. It was promptly removed. On November 12th, the jury had reached a unanimous decision. The families were all called back in. Two key individuals were not able to return on time. Gregos and Lee Peterson were not there. After waiting for all parties to arrive, Brent Rocha was the last family member to enter the courtroom. The judge took his seat and called in the jury. 
Scott Peterson smiled as the jury read the verdict, guilty. The jury found Scott Peterson guilty of first-degree murder of Lacey Denise Peterson and second-degree murder of Connor Peterson. An eruption of celebration was heard outside the courtroom. Gasp could be heard in the courtroom. And Sharon began crying. What do you think about the defense or lack thereof? (laughs) When Garagos took the case, initially he believed that there was a possibility that he could get the jury to find Scott innocent. I think he was confident in his ability to be able to present a case in a manner that would allow for Scott to get off. And when he realized that he was unable to do that is when... One, he couldn't get things thrown out that he wanted thrown out that were risky, especially when it came to the recorded conversations with Amber Fry, because just hearing about it, if he would have had the tapes taken out and he was able to speak about the tapes or the prosecution was able to speak about the tapes, but they didn't play them, the case could have gone significantly different. And the reason for that is because... Garagos actually talked in an interview about how when he read the transcript that it didn't seem that bad. He thought he could work an angle with that. But once he heard the recordings, he's like, this is horrible. This is damning, which explains why if you rewind back to when he tried to have tapes removed, this is exactly why. Not just that. We already know the history of the dishonesty amongst the family and that it's a character flaw, a major character flaw. So I'm pretty sure that there was probably a lot of things that Garagos was not told. Right. And you're setting your attorney up for failure, honestly, because things are going to happen that you don't account for. So in order for you to be able to present the best case possible, your attorney needs to have that information so that your attorney can be ready when it happens. Yeah. Scott could have been fighting this case from the very beginning with the right lawyer. If he had been honest, if he had come in and said, Hey, I have a girlfriend. Let's say for example, in the world where Scott is innocent, if Scott would have truly been innocent and he would have came to his lawyer at the very beginning when this all began on December 24th and said, I have a girlfriend, my wife is missing. I had nothing to do with it. And he would have been like, okay, this is what you need to do. These are the things that you need to, how you need to communicate. This is what you need. He could have avoided a lot of the problems that he had. Even if he would have stopped talking to Amber. If he just would have been like, my wife's missing. This affair no longer matters to me. And you know, and an attorney would have told him that. An attorney would have told him, listen, you can't talk to her at all. No, not at all. Yeah, cease all communication with her. And I say that because I know there's a lot of people that still believe Scott is innocent. Right. And obviously the only person who really knows if Scott is innocent or not is Scott. And Lacey. And Lacey and Mackenzie. They're the only two people that know whether Scott is innocent or not. And so we're all left to look at the evidence and try to paint a picture with the evidence. And if Scott is innocent, he allowed the picture to be painted one where he's the villain. He presented all the pieces that allowed for the world to villainize him. And it's his fault. Yeah, I completely agree with that. You told a story about the possibility of what happened with, you know, the wire cutters and and the chicken wire. And I want people to understand why none of that would have been shared in court. And that's because it couldn't be proven. And so because it couldn't be proven, there's no use in trying to put a theory out there, even a theory that makes sense, because it puts a kink in the armor of the case. So and you don't want that. So in a case like this one, where those things can't be proven, they're not going to risk their case to push things forward that they know an expert can come in and, and refute. It's just not smart. It's not a smart strategy. Right. And disaster does say, as he's doing his closing arguments, I can't tell you where she was killed. I can't tell you how she was killed. I can't tell you with what she was killed. What I can tell you is that Scott Peterson was the last person to see her. She went missing and she turned up at the place where Scott Peterson said that he was at on the day that she went missing. And that proves that he murdered her beyond a reasonable doubt. 
Do you know what happened to McKinsey? When Scott Peterson ended up going to live at his sister and Bird's house in the San Francisco Bay, actually overlooking the bay where he dumped the body of Lacey, McKenzie went to go stay with his brother in San Diego. I find everything surrounding McKenzie quite funny. Every time I hear about the timeline with McKenzie and how McKenzie ended up back in the yard, I think about a dog that I had when I grew up. And the reason that I think about this is because... We had a dog when I was very young. Like any parent, when your kids aren't doing their responsibilities and when you're forced as a parent who's working really hard and working a lot of hours to take care of a pet, you get really upset because you're like, that ain't my pet or like you guys aren't doing your job. So my dad's like, we're not going to have a dog. So my dad tried to take our dog and leave our dog out in the country. And our dog was smart. So he didn't just do this once. He did this several times, just so you know. So the last time he did it, he dropped her off, and she's a German shepherd. By the time he got home, the last time that he tried to leave her, he drove a different way home to like try to trick her. And by the time he got home, my mom had said something about the dog, and he's like, what are you talking about? And so she points outside, and she was already back in the backyard by the time he got home. I tell that story because I think McKenzie is part of what helped this case if even to a small degree, but I think about some of the different behaviors with McKenzie and imagine, imagine walking out of your house and letting your, not an outside dog outside with a leash on, because this is going to be part of your alibi and McKenzie ain't going to walk herself. McKenzie ain't going on a walk by herself. So McKenzie didn't go anywhere, which is why McKenzie was back in the yard in 10 minutes, 10 minutes from when he left. I don't think McKenzie ever went anywhere. I think McKenzie stayed by the house. And when you hear when they were at the park and, you know, Sharon talks about how Scott was walking in a different area with McKenzie, McKenzie's walking like there's nothing significant. Imagine you as a pet owner, if you went missing in an area, you're like your dog will panic. Like you're Pets are smart. And so your dog would be barking or getting uncomfortable or circling around an area if something took place. And so the fact that, you know, McKenzie had such a calm demeanor, even when like Scott came home, like if he came home and McKenzie was like running around or like acting weird, you would know that something was off. And so none of that occurred. So the only bad actor was Scott. When Scott was emotional, And what she described as being genuinely emotional with Amber Fry, I think that's when he grieved. I think he grieved when he told her that story. And I don't even know that that was a grieving for her or for his son, but more so for processing what he was going to be doing and why and all of those things. One of the things about the jury that I kind of want to highlight, Fran Gorman, when she's replaced on the jury... One of the things that the jury members were, not all of them, but there were a a few people on the jury, one guy in particular, who had a background as a uh, being in the Marine Corps. He took the role of ensuring that the rules were followed. And he was adamant. And and they all were. They had all committed to making sure that they they didn't do anything that caused a mistrial. He's the one that wrote a letter to the judge that removed the first juror because he wouldn't shut his mouth. The first juror that talked to Brent Rocha wouldn't shut up. He wouldn't stop talking about the case outside of the jury room. One of the jurors felt like he was putting the jury at risk and putting the trial at risk for a mistrial, and he wrote a letter to the judge and said, this guy's got to go. This guy can't shut his mouth. And obviously he couldn't, because as soon as he walked outside, he went straight to the media. He couldn't wait. The second juror that gets replaced is Fran, and she does something dumb. She goes and gets on the internet and does her own research, and obviously that's not allowed. You're not allowed to do your own research and do your own investigation. And so when she brings that information of what she's discovered to the table for deliberation, they're like, wait a minute, you did your own research? That is not allowed. And they were conflicted because they've been together for six months. They've built relationships. They're friends. They've partied together. They've had meals together. And now they've got to kick one of their own off of the team. But if they don't, and this comes out later, this can be cause a mistrial. And you know, and, and part of your duty as a as a jury is to ensure that there is a fair trial and that you're taking the guidance that you're given in the beginning and that you're following that. And the importance in that is so that there isn't a mistrial and so that there is a fair trial. 
and so that you are actually allowing for somebody to re- receive justice and in the right way. And so I think that they did a really good job of that. And so, you know, a lot of people hear about jurors being removed and, you know, you can look at that on either side saying, oh, they were trying to make it better for the prosecution. Oh, they were trying to make it better for the defense. But the truth is, is that in a case, in any case, especially a high profile case, you want the jury to be doing the right thing. And if they're not, then they should be removed. And so it tells me that people are being removed because it's going to eliminate the possibility of there being a mistrial or of there being an appeal that is pushed through and, you know, turns things around and pulls that, you know, that rug of justice right from under the family who rightfully deserved it. And I think they did a good job, honestly. Yeah, I, I agree. The last juror that was removed was the lawyer doctor. He removed himself. He requested to be removed. Because once he was voted out of being the foreman, he didn't want to be part of the team if he couldn't be in charge of the team. And so he tried to sabotage the proceedings. And one thing that they talked about was the fact that he had like 21 notebooks that he had wrote and written in so many notes. But then when they were going through deliberations, he never had an opinion of anything. And he had to always reference his notes to figure out what he had written down and how he felt about things. And he just was disconnected from the case. He was really stuck in analysis paralysis and just couldn't make a decision. They come back. And they find him guilty of first-degree murder of Lacey and second-degree murder of Connor Peterson. I wasn't the last one to see Lacey that day. There were so many witnesses who saw her walking in the neighborhood after I left. The cops just never followed up on the burglar across the street. The police failed to find my family. And in 2004, when the jury found him guilty, Scott says he was shocked. And then she had this weird sensation that uh, I was falling forward and forward and, and down. And there was going to be no end to this falling forward and down, like there was no floor to land on. Mm-hmm. I, I was staggered by it. I had no idea it was coming. On November 30th, 2003, the penalty phase of the trial began. The penalty phase of a trial, often seen in capital cases, is a separate proceeding that takes place after a defendant has been convicted, but before sentencing. The purpose is to determine the appropriate punishment for the crime. In capital cases, this typically involves deciding between life imprisonment and the death penalty. However, penalty phases can also occur in non-capital cases to help the jury or judge decide on an appropriate sentence within the parameters set by law. During the penalty phase, both the prosecution and the defense could present evidence and make arguments concerning what they believe the sentence should be. The prosecution often presents aggravating factors, elements that make the crime particularly heinous or the defendant more deserving of severe punishment. This could include things like prior criminal history, the level of cruelty or violence used in the crime, or the vulnerability of the victim. On the other side, the defense presents mitigating factors, circumstances that might lessen the defendant's moral culpability or otherwise suggest that a less severe punishment is appropriate. Mitigating factors can range from the defendant's age, mental state, and lack of criminal record to evidence of remorse or rehabilitation. After hearing all the evidence and the arguments, the jury or sometimes the judge, depending on the jurisdiction and circumstances, will deliberate and make a recommendation for sentencing. This recommendation isn't always binding, but is typically given great weight by the judge who ultimately imposes the sentence. Lacey's family testified during the penalty phase of the trial. She woke the courtroom when she yelled directly at Scott. Divorce is always an option. Murder is not. She lamented that he had known Lacey to get seasick and he had purposefully placed her in the water to be sick for the remainder of eternity. She also painted a very sad picture of Lacey and Connor sharing a coffin together. 
She said Lacey should have had hands to hold her son and she should have had a head to be able to watch him and smile. The individuals that spoke on behalf of Scott spoke about a Scott that no longer existed. Most of Scott's friends had to be encouraged to speak on his behalf. On December 13th, the jury returned with a verdict. We, the jury in the above entitled cause, fix the penalty at death. The sentence is death. Jurors reached their dramatic decision to send Scott Peterson to death row after 12 hours of deliberations. Scott Peterson showed no emotion as he heard himself sentenced to die other than to clench his jaw. Inside Edition's Jim Moray. It was standing room only inside that courtroom and extremely tense. When Scott walked in, he smiled toward his parents. Jackie Peterson gave her son some words of encouragement. Mark Arago sat with his arm around his client, who remained stone-faced as he had throughout much of this trial. When the verdict was finally read, Sharon Rocha, Lacey's mother, gasped. Jackie Peterson shook her head, no, no. And within minutes, the verdict was in print, a single word, death. The jury sentenced Scott to death. Judge DeLucci would state the young boy Connor wasn't even permitted to take a breath of air on this earth. Ron would mouth the words, I'm sorry, to Lee Peterson, who would mouth the words, F you, in response. Sharon would publish the following message on Lacey's webpage. Today is not a joyous day. It is just another sad reminder of whom we have lost, our Lacey and Connor. A reminder of what we have lost. A huge part of our family and our lives as we once knew them. There are no winners in a case like this one. We are families who are suffering horrendous losses. On March 16, 2005, Judge DeLucci would uphold the sentence denying Scott's motion for a new trial. All the jurors expressing their commitment to seeing the sentence carried out would attend the hearing months later. The Rochas were able to make statements directly to Scott at this hearing. Brent would tell Scott that he had purchased a gun and had planned on killing Scott. Deciding at the last minute that he'd prefer to see Scott suffer in prison instead of giving him a quick death. Rose, Brent's wife, and Lacey's sister-in-law would express her disgust for once letting Scott touch her belly. Dennis called Scott a piece of crap and that he would burn in hell for what he did. Ron had similar words for Scott. Of course, Sharon's statement was the most impactful. No one can express the sadness of a loss of a child like a mother can. Sharon stated that the Scott that they all knew had ceased to exist on December 24, 2002. Scott, you made a conscious decision to murder Lacey and Connor, she stated. Scott responded by shaking his head in disagreement. His only reaction, you thought after a few weeks we would stop looking for Lacey and then just forget about her as though they never existed. He was wrong. I believe they would have never stopped looking for Lacey. On April 30th, 2009, Dennis Rocha, Lacey's father, and Sharon Ruth Rocha, Lacey's mother, retract their civil wrongful death suit against Scott Lee Peterson. It's really sad. I can't imagine having gone through first the preliminary hearing, then the trial, then the sentencing, and then a hearing for a retrial, for a new trial. And you know, something really stands out to me during this in how both families approach this. For Ron mouthing to Lee, I'm sorry. You know, what he's sorry for is he understands that loss hurts. And even though justice is being served, he knows that that's not going to make it feel any better for him. So he's saying, I'm sorry for that. And that speaks of the Roach's character as opposed to the Peterson's character, who in return gives an ugly response back. And even when Sharon is speaking and Sharon is talking about 
the pain of the families, she's speaking about both families. So she's not even just speaking about her own. So she too is putting forth character that is consistent with what they have showed throughout the trial. And even as Lacey and her brother were growing up and then not on the Peterson side. And I think it's very telling of the difference of the characters between the two families. It's very different. And you know, if Lacey's brother would have, you know, showed up to court and somehow was able to take Scott out, he would have sat in prison and now he would be grieving the loss of being able to spend time with his family. Sharon would have been grieving even further. Everybody would have. Yeah. And so I'm glad that he had the strength to refrain from making a huge mistake like that, that would have really taken this in a completely different direction. And honestly, he was accurate. You know, I think that him being sent to death is an easy way out, honestly. On July 5th, 2012, seven years after being sentenced to death, Scott Peterson filed his appeal, indicating that there had been many legal errors in his trial and additionally would show evidence that would support he is innocent. The appeal attacked how the jury was selected. By using a questionnaire to identify jurors who were opposed to the death penalty, the defense felt that the juror was predisposed to return a death sentence upon completion of the trial if a guilty verdict was the outcome. The defense also intended to prove in this appeal of the following. One, the water expert that the prosecution used was not an expert in the area he was questioned. Two, the dog tracking was prejudicial with a 66% accuracy on its record, meaning it was not very accurate. Three, the exclusion of the boat demonstration and the instability that throwing Lacey overboard would have caused was not presented. On January 26, 2015, the state's attorney general's office filed their response. The introduction of the response started off with a quote from Scott Peterson from a conversation that he had had with Amber Fry, and it read, I never had a prolonged period of freedom like that from responsibility, and you know, an interesting to me and something you could incorporate into life. Scott Peterson said this to his mistress during the ongoing search for Lacey Peterson, his wife, who was eight months pregnant at the time and who went missing just days before on Christmas Eve 2002. Scott Peterson was raised by a loving family and enjoyed a life of privilege. Given the fortuitous timing of the success of the family's business, Peterson lived in nicer, bigger houses than his older siblings and went on more family vacations. His parents provided him with access to a first-rate education. They also bought him a country club membership and gave him money for a down payment on the couple's first house. When Peterson became restless at a particular school or job and wanted to make a change, his parents were there to help him move on to something new. Yet, despite all of that his parents did for him, they could not give their son the one thing he secretly wanted most, to be free from his marriage to Lacey and from having to raise Connor, their soon-to-be-born son. In other words, freedom from responsibility. So, fueled by the trifecta of selfishness, arrogance, and wanderlust, Scott Peterson decided to take matters into his own hands by planning and carrying out the murders of his wife and an unborn child and then dumping their lifeless bodies into the San Francisco Bay. Thankfully, the forces of nature did not oblige Peterson in this attempt to hide the evidence of his crimes. Although he was successful in ridding himself of those perceived irksome responsibilities, all the while portraying himself as the consummate husband and family man, ironically, Peterson forfeited his freedom in the end. On July 23, 2015, Scott's defense responded, attacking the state attorney general's implication that the trial had gone perfectly. They would focus on the jury selection process and reiterate their same points in their response. This would be predominantly focused on juror number seven, Rachel Neese, who had replaced one of the primary jurors. She had failed to disclose a previous legal proceeding involving her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend threatening her while she was pregnant. This would then go to the California Supreme Court for decision. In 2018, Scott Peterson's defense team would file a reply claiming this time that his defense attorney, Margaregos, the celebrity attorney who represented him at trial, didn't properly address evidence regarding a burglary that occurred across the street from the Peterson home and that he had failed to call witnesses crucial to his defense. Witnesses who had claimed to see Lacey alive and walking around the neighborhood after Scott Peterson had left for his fishing trip. On December 9th of that same year, Dennis Robert Rocha passed away peacefully in his home in Escalon, California. 16 years after his daughter and grandson's murders. 
On August 24, 2020, amidst the height of COVID, the California Supreme Court responded with the following. Peterson contends his trial was flawed for multiple reasons, beginning with the unusual amount of pretrial publicity that surrounded the case. We reject Peterson's claim that he received an unfair trial as to the guilt and thus affirm his convictions for murder. But before the trial began, the trial court made a series of clear and significant errors in jury selection that, under long-standing United States Supreme Court precedent, undermined Peterson's right to an impartial jury at the penalty phase. While a court may dismiss a prospective juror as unqualified to sit on a capital case if the juror's views on capital punishment would substantially impair his or her ability to follow the law, a juror may not be dismissed merely because he or she has expressed opposition to the death penalty as a general matter. This decision would save Scott Peterson from the death penalty and lethal injection. Scott Peterson is no longer on death row. He's been moved from San Quentin to Mule Creek State Prison in Ione. Keep in mind, his death sentence for killing his pregnant wife, Lacey, an unborn child, was overturned. A state judge is now considering if Peterson deserves a new trial after claims a juror may have had bias in the case. Scott would aim for a new trial, but it would be denied in 2022, claiming that Scott had already gotten a fair trial. On December 9, 2021, a year to the date of Dennis Roach's passing, a San Mateo Superior Court judge and Christine Masulo resentenced Scott Peterson to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Peterson and his supporters maintained the wrong man is in prison for Lacey and Connor's death. According to Detective Bueller, he says, well, I guess it's possible. But you know, there's still people that believe the earth is flat too. On October 21st, 2022, Scott is photographed at his new home at Mule Creek State Prison in California, being removed from San Quentin's death row. On December 20th, Judge Masulo denies Scott's writ of habeas corpus and denies his request for a new trial. This brings us to current. There's so much about this case that really sticks out. One of those is that the Peterson family, and I know not all of them believe this, but the majority of the Peterson family has tried to maintain Scott's innocence. And I believe that based on the character that we've seen all throughout from when Lacey went missing and even hearing about conversations from, you know, Jackie Peterson that just are not nice comments. Like she's just not a nice person really say a lot about the Peterson family. And I believe that when you unpack all of the things that have come out about the Rocha family, it it gives you the opposite. And a parent is never going to stop grieving their child. That is a forever thing. So the Roaches are never going to just stop grieving for Lacey. Is it going to be different? Are moments going to be different that remind them of her or remind them of the grandbaby that they were going to have? Absolutely. But to constantly have the feeling that he's constantly trying to get out, you know, that has to be so stressful on the Rocha family and a piece that they cannot have until he can no longer do that because they're constantly having to deal with that. You know, you have a lot of people who are very supportive of, you know, Scott Peterson being innocent. Now, I think that a lot of those people have not seen all of the evidence, have not seen the court documentation, like have not seen the stuff in black and white. To think that you would have a whole jury who's swayed by one juror to a decision is unrealistic. Because there is no physical evidence, because there's no crime scene, there's nothing solid, there's no smoking gun, it comes down to opinion. Everyone's opinion. The opinion of the jurors, the opinion of of the press, the opinion of the people who know him, the people who had his back at the beginning and then didn't have his back. It's all opinion. I think that's what makes it hard for a lot of people to say he's innocent or to say he's guilty. A lot of people just don't have that level of conviction in the evidence that was presented 
to have that opinion. Some people 100% will make that opinion with limited information, which is why we did a very thorough job of looking at everything that was presented, everything that happened, everything that transpired. We didn't take anyone's word for it. We didn't read an article and go, oh, he's guilty. Oh, he's innocent. We looked at all the evidence. And even to this day, my opinion of it is that if he was innocent, if there was a sliver of hope that some random bad actor took Lacey off the street and murdered her and her son and put her in the San Francisco Bay to frame Scott, even if that was a sliver of opportunity, of, of possibility, that Scott didn't do himself any justice by all the activities that he did that made him look guilty. Constant lying, the adultery, the fact that he didn't tell police about the affair, the fact that he kept driving out to the marina to, to look where they were searching at, the whistle that he did when Sharon called him on the phone and said, it's not Lacey's body, it's an anchor, the maniacal laughing when his mom left him a voicemail saying, hey, someone said there's a sighting of Lacey in Washington state. And he laughed. There's no way that could be Lacey. This is all captured on tape. Right. These are all things that a normal person could experience and see and hear and come to the opinion that he's guilty. But some people will also look at that and say, well, it could mean this or it could mean that. And that's really going to be based on your personal opinion of the law, your personal experience with legal proceedings, your personal experience with crime. Like, all that's going to play into your opinion. Not just that, but I think that for a majority of people, they have a huge conscience when it comes to wrongfully imprisoning somebody or wrongfully putting somebody to death. That is a heavy decision. Right. And But think about that when you think about the jury, because there's no way that you put 12 people together and that a majority of them were not sitting there nervous about this has to be the correct decision because I don't want to put somebody wrongfully in prison and I don't want to wrongfully put somebody to death. Nobody wants that on their conscience. Right. And actually in the book, We the Jury, the jurors talk about that exactly being the case and the fact that they didn't want to convict an innocent person. That would be something that a lot of them said they could not live with. And so they all went into that role as a juror with Scott being innocent. He's already innocent. This is, they say this in the book. He's already innocent. Prove to us that he's guilty. Right. Show me why he's guilty. And they questioned a lot of the initial witnesses that came forward. But as we started getting into the tapes and we started getting into the experts and we started getting into a lot of those things started to paint a picture that was not positive for Scott Peterson. One of the things that comes out later is how Garagos saying that he was going to prove that Scott was innocent and he had these eyewitnesses that he was going to bring in. What he spoke about later was how once he questioned all these people that supposedly were supposed to have seen Lacey walking her dog and all these things, witnesses that he planned to use, that the statements, they, they didn't make sense. And so he couldn't use them. It would have been detrimental to the case. So you don't get to hear in a lot of those initial things as, oh, well, he said he was going to do this, but he didn't. So you don't know why he didn't. So he himself, as the person who's trying to get Scott off can't and if they were good witnesses to use he was going to use them he would have used them 100%. so he doesn't want to be known as the attorney that lost the biggest case ever on tv yeah you know he doesn't want to do that so he made that decision because it didn't make sense and he knew anybody that he brought forward they were going to eat up the timeline the timeline was not going to work again you had 10 minutes he had 10 minutes to work in right 10 minutes he had to find somebody that said they saw Lacey within 10 minutes. Right. It was not possible. It was not possible. As we close out the defense and the appeals, we are left with questions still. Is Scott Peterson innocent? To some people, some people will say yes. Is Scott guilty? 
Others will say yes. It really is a matter of opinion. Did the prosecution present a case that was beyond a reasonable doubt to the 12 individuals that sat there judging Scott Peterson? The answer is yes. Without a reasonable doubt, they determined that all the evidence provided proved that Scott Peterson committed this murder. It wasn't a trial by media. It wasn't a predetermined conclusion. It wasn't a conspiracy theory that landed Scott Peterson on death row. This was a case that was brought together with evidence from detectives who did a fantastic job. One of the metrics that they measured in Modesto was the amount of missing people that had been found. And at the time that Lacey was missing, there was only two people that had not been found that had gone missing. By the time they found Lacey and Connor, that was down to one person, one person who had not been returned. So the detectives in Modesto did a phenomenal job of investigating this crime and bringing forth evidence. Did they make some mistakes? Yes. Were they nefarious in their activities? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They gathered what they could. They tried to rule out who they could rule out. They followed every potential lead that they can follow. Scott didn't do himself any justice. Scott helped them put him behind bars by his activities and his lies and his colluding and his inability to show any type of emotion towards the loss of his wife and his, and his kid. The next part of this series will be conducting a deep dive of Scott's psychology, of his mindset. What could make a person who had all the opportunities in life become a murderer? A murderer. A murderer. A murderer. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.